Welcome to the Using the Whole Whale podcast, where we learn from leaders about new ideas and digital strategies making a difference in the social impact world. This podcast is a proud production of Whole Whale, a B Corp digital agency. Thank you for joining us. Now, let's go learn something. This week on the Nonprofit News, well, we're talking about an open letter from Future Life Institute. Uh, Nick, how's it going? It's going good, George. I'm excited for today's pod. I know it's going to be an especially energetic one, and we will go right into it. Our first I should know we're we're in April. We're officially in April for for timing, and oh. we're not making any April first jokes. I like we just passed it over. It was on the weekend. No April 1st joke. So everything in here is absolutely real. Everything in here is real. And we can say that April showers bring May flowers and allergies. But uh, <laughs> we'll forget about that for now. <laughs> we, as you alluded to, George, want to talk about this. Please pause AI open letter from the Future of Life Institute. So the Future of Life Institute is a nonprofit that has come out with a letter about AI systems with human competitive intelligence that may pose risks to society and humanity, calling for a pause on the training of such systems more powerful than OpenAI's GPT-4 for at least six months. So kind of like a pause to figure out what are we doing? How are we going to get there? Let's figure this out. During this time, AI labs want independent experts to collaborate to create shared safety protocols for the advancement of AI development, which should be rigorously audited and overseen by independent outside experts, it says. They also call for policymakers to develop robust AI governance that include regulatory authorities, oversight, tracking, uh, auditing, and a certification ecosystem, as well as liability for AI-caused harm, with well-resourced institutions for coping with the dramatic economic and political disruptions caused by AI. This letter was uh, signed by a lot of high-profile people, including Elon Musk. However, uh, it would appear that some of the authors of the research upon which this letter is based on had some criticisms of the letter, saying that the letter in some ways misrepresents their concerns and that their concerns are a little bit more immediate. My take on this is... I'm glad to see that there are at least people thinking about the harms of this. AI has the power to do tremendous good and a tremendous increase in productivity. But just like social media, there are ways it can be used for abuse and every effort needs to be made to minimize that. So I'm glad that people are thinking about it. This letter seems like a little bit of a I don't know, kind of like an overzealous, the world is ending thing. Usually when people in Silicon Valley say this is going to, uh, they talk about technology, <laughs> sometimes in the form of like, this is like a new, like godlike technology. I'm a little skeptical. Uh, George, I don't know. What's what's your take on this letter, this whole debacle, kind of like the big questions about is AI going to wipe out humanity? What do you think about all this? I think it's important to note that the Future of Life Institute, FLI, did receive something like $4 million of its funding from the Musk Foundation. Uh, what's more, in 2018, Musk had a uh, fairly public and written about falling out with OpenAI. Um, you know, according to a Forbes article, he was trying to sort of take over and it, it didn't go well. And he was he was pushed out of the organization. So 
I think there's a little bit of sour grapes here, maybe. You know, I, I don't think it can be overlooked quickly. Uh, it also didn't help the FLI, Future of Life Institute, letter that they had fake signatures from people like Meta's chief AI scientist and folks like Xi Jinping. Uh, they've since put in a new signature verification process. I think the points that they bring up are certainly important. And unfortunately, I don't think the, the government and its, you know, ability to to get bills passed in any shape or form within a time frame is, is going to be able to respond. But at least it's bringing to light the conversation of what needs to be done. Because right now, it is a, a genuine race fueled by capitalism for developing more and more intelligent models. If you haven't played with them, things like GPT-4 can now pass with flying colors the bar exam. And that has tremendous ramifications. It also has tremendous upsides for social impact organizations. And so what I'm hoping is that, you know, the type of fear-mongering in here doesn't turn off the social impact adoption of these tools because as you alluded to the use of these tools for the proliferation and mass production we'll say of mis and disinformation is unparalleled in our lifetime like that's not hyperbole that's factual accuracy in 2022 with one tool one tool built on top of gpt 15 billion words were created all of Wikipedia is four to five billion words. I'm not saying that the words created by that tool were missing disinformation, but I'm certainly not going to bet that 100% were totally on point. So I think it is incredibly important for your nonprofit to be answering the question, how are we using these tools and not fall into this sort of easy scapegoating, frankly, of being like, well, this technology is bad because I heard something about how they pulled in data. I heard that their servers use up energy and so we shouldn't use it. And, you know, fill, fill in the blank for blocking adoption. This is a tech that can't be ignored. And I do agree. It, it, it needs regulation. It needs uh, standards in place. But while it's out there, I, I think you should understand what it can and can't do. Absolutely, George. I couldn't agree more. And I'm glad you talked about what nonprofits need to think about when it comes to this new technology, because at wholewhale.com, we just published an article uh, that's kind of a list of all the considerations nonprofits should take into account when it comes to this technology. Chief among them, they can't ignore it. You already, nonprofits already have staff using this technology. ChatGPT has, what, 100 million users uh, it's here. You can't ignore it. But what you need to do is talk about trainings, talk about use cases. When is it appropriate? When is it inappropriate? Be creative about ways that it, it can increase productivity, but also understand that technology can impact societies and communities. So think about that as well. How are your nonprofit's constituents? How are your nonprofit's board members, your audiences interacting and thinking about this technology? This is like social media. 
Think of the ways that social media has transformed society for the good, getting out your message, spreading your message, helping your organization to be more visible and communicate and understand the world, but also understanding the downsides of social media. Uh, this is, I think nonprofits should approach AI like in hindsight, we should have approached social media, understand it, understand it, how it's going to uh, affect, impact the world, the tremendous value of it, and also understand its potential ramifications. Uh, so go read more about that at Howell.com, and you're going to hear us more uh, on this podcast talking about it, but just giving a little shout out to that article, and we will definitely be talking more about this in the next coming episodes. Yeah, thanks, Nick. Uh well, moving on to government intervention and the and the interwebs, uh, we have an article here about the TikTok ban coming potential. That's right, George. We have an article from the Electronic Frontier Foundation that essentially asserts asserts that the government hasn't justified a TikTok ban. So, as you may or may not recall, with over the in the past couple of weeks, uh, Congress held a public hearing where they grilled the CEO of TikTok on connections and influence by ByteDance, TikTok's parent company, which is a China, Beijing-based company, uh, along issues around data privacy, uh, data access, mis- and disinformation, et cetera, et cetera. And here, the Electronic Frontier Foundation argues that the government has not made its case to ban TikTok. And it talks about both current legislation, it talks about uh, the ethos of freedom of the speech and the free flow of information. It's worth taking a look. It talks about the Data Act. It talks about the potential. Would the U.S. government even be able to coerce ByteDance into selling TikTok, etc.? Worth reading about. My hot take on the whole TikTok thing is probably not a hot take. It's a nuanced take. TikTok has problems. A lot of social media companies have problems. TikTok has the interesting and unfortunate distinction of being a Chinese-based uh, app owned by a Chinese-based parent company in a country where business and government uh, aren't exactly entirely distinct from one another. Uh, the government can do whatever it wants and can do whatever it wants should it so choose. That proposes a unique problem and challenge for TikTok app. I think some of the privacy concerns and national security concerns are somewhat valid, but the government couldn't, can't and shouldn't just rush into a ban without understanding the real ramifications for legislating on social media, especially with legislation that could have such wide reaching ramifications. I will say though, the good thing that comes out of this is uh, now, mis- and disinformation, internet governance are now back at the forefront of Congress. They've been behind the wheel for two decades now, in my opinion. It's at the forefront of the conversation. It's a little unfortunate. I think some of the criticisms of TikTok are quite frankly xenophobic and racist, particularly uh, the ones directed at the CEO of TikTok. Uh, but that being said, despite the, the hyperbole and some of the ulterior political motives. It are, It is conversation worth having. But anyway, uh, recommend our listeners to check out that article by the Electronic Frontier Foundation. George, what's your thought on all this? I just think it's particularly interesting when we have 
our very, very divided government actually united on this, both the left and the right. I wouldn't necessarily categorize the suspicion of TikTok as xenophobic, rather factually accurate that literally the first question they asked the CEO was, did you consult with the CCP before making testimony? That is kind of all you need to know. And now if the question is, do you think even looking back to our last election and the amount of turmoil and tumult caused by a social network that was owned by us, but manipulated by a foreign adversary, do you think that that is a security threat? Do you think you could have an open dialogue about, I don't know, the attack on Uyghurs currently in China and, and that social media platform? Do you think that would be something that they would let the algorithm work on? What if, let's say, also you were interested in disrupting American legal enforcement? Could you not just put your finger on somebody putting a funny thing on TikTok, like putting sugar in a gas tank of a police car and call it sugaring and let that trend? Have you just enabled a country of domestic terrorism on your police force? I think the government paying attention to this is excellent. I think their response to it is draconian and terrifying. Really dig into the Restrict Act. If you just sort of blanket, sort of buy into one side or the other, this is the Patriot Act on steroids for the danger that it could cause to the open internet. We become the enemy that we like criticize immediately by doing this because of the vagaries of, quote, foreign adversaries and then the government's ability to simply block on the internet information and communication technology wholesale. We talk about the Chinese firewall. What do you what do you think this is? This is that. That is not good. And so I'm very worried about using this sort of great opportunity of like, oh, all the Americans are united in this narrative to to enact something that would be devastating. I actually I looked around. I was very glad the EFF, yeah, EFF did this. I, I wish they went deeper on the ramifications, really, of the Restrict Act because it's being floated out there and it can just like go past the goalie. And it's kind of in wholesale, like I actually think TikTok should be banned, <laughs> but I could be swayed. But I, I don't think I could be swayed on giving the government carte blanche on creating a firewall in America of information that cuts off the World Wide Web from us. I think that's a bad idea. Yeah, George, I think that that nuance is really important. There are legitimate national security concerns. They are legitimate. There's no way around them. Uh, if you're in the military and you work for the government, they've already established that they cannot yeah. have that application. They have deemed mm -hmm. it a threat, and reasonably so. And frankly, look, the U.S., when the Twitter files came out, you saw how much the U.S. is tinkering with our own data inside of Twitter. <laughs> like they're, they're able to get whatever they want. And so you're like, well, I guess if it's us, it's better. But like, questions. Yeah, George. It's interesting. A while ago, uh, I remember you and I were having a conversation, and we talked about regulating Facebook. And you would always say to me, how lucky we are. Facebook is a California-based company. Uh, <laughs> at least it's in our backyard. Exactly. It's it's a problem, but it's at least a problem we have jurisdiction over. Complicated stuff. <laughs> We're going to come back to this. We'll see how it goes. George, if you're the average nonprofit and you have a TikTok presence, should they be thinking about this yet? Kind of not yet. Just kind of see where this takes us. Knowing our government, nothing's actually 
probably going to happen. But I, you know, I don't maybe know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I would I'm be. Wrong. I'd be very careful because this also gets categorized. This is a double win. This like gets categorized under our, you know, sort of uh, escalating tensions with with China and sending those signals back and forth. And with regard to your social media strategy, if you've like tripled down on TikTok, just consider like the risks of building castles on sand, right? Like if your foundation could be taken away with what percent chance? Would you put 5% on it? 10%. Consider what that means then if overnight that happens to to your investment. Would you have your entire portfolio invested in one stock or one type of thing? I would immediately begin to diversify to YouTube Shorts and experiment with that platform because it is owned by good old Google. And that's probably not going to go away. So I would also be looking at as much as I hate to say it, you know, Facebook with regard to Instagram you know, stories and reels, like the things that they copycatted, I would be making content for, for all of those, ho- trying to repurpose and post to, to shore up the audience. You know, George, I think that's a great point. Lots to think about in this world. Uh, but bringing it back to uh, our nonprofit uh, stories here, we have one from The Nonprofit Times, and it's about the 2023 best nonprofit winners found a way to connect. And this story is about the best nonprofits talking about how they were able to connect in a world of virtual work, talking about onboarding uh, new employees, uh, talks a lot about nonprofit culture and and how to, to form those connections in such a kind of challenging uh, virtual onboarding time. George, we at Whole Whale uh, have grown a lot. Uh, since and during COVID, something we're, we're very privileged to have experienced. Uh, and we learned a lot about virtual onboarding and creating a uh, collegial, supportive, and fun work environment. Why did you include this article? And what do you take away from it? I'm just a sucker for rankings, first off. I think it's a clever way to get uh, news attention. And our friends at the Nonprofit Times are, are executing on this really well. And uh, I think it's also... Something to be proud of, I think, in the uh, remote first work environment to to see how this might be changing and what trends there might be with some of the ones at the top. Also, shout out to America's Charities coming in at number 11. I was the former board chair there. I'm happy to see them uh, still uh, still in the running. It's kind of great. That's awesome. Yeah. Love, love some good ranking competition. George, I can say with definitive certainty that we would be ranked at the top of nonprofit digital agencies oh, with nautical themed <laughs> names. That's one we should blow out of the water. He did it. He did it right there. I did it. All right. Moving along, this one comes from the Miami Herald, and it is about Alberto Ibarguen, uh, Ibarguen president and CEO of the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Miami. Miami-based philanthropic group that has profoundly influenced media coverage of arts and culture programs across the country. Alberto is retiring, the foundation announced on Friday. Alberto Imbarguen is 79, famously energetic, uh, and while didn't say the R, retire word, himself, and notes that he's stepping down, he's been there for 18 years and describes it as, quote, just a fantastic, fantastic run 
a fantastic opportunity. The Knight Foundation, of course, the influential uh, philanthropic group based out of Miami. And we like to highlight jobs well done. And this seems like uh, quite the job well done. George, uh, what's your take on this? Yeah, Alberto was an absolute leader. If you're talking about journalism and digital media in a very transformative era and just celebrating when CEOs uh, leave uh, with that type of legacy and stature. And he had a quote in here. My view of the beginning was that this was less a charity and more a social investment opportunity. In charity, traditionally, you make the grant walk away. You'll be rewarded in heaven. That didn't strike me as a way the night brothers ran their business, and they were thinking about this as a social investment. You look in the community, you see what the issues are, you decide which ones you can do something about and which ones you have a social impact on short or long term, and then you focus on those. Uh, also, just personally, uh, early in my career, Alberto was uh, tremendously helpful, and so I have always uh, looked on with admiration as I was co-founding CTOs for good. The Knight Foundation gave gave space and, and some funding to help get that going. It's still running today. Helped do something.org and countless other organizations that I have worked in and around. So uh, a, a amazing uh, history of impact there. So hats off. That's awesome to hear. Hats off to Alberto and uh, a job well done. We love celebrating. And speaking of celebrating, uh, this is a pretty cheery episode for our standards. No death instruction <laughs> today. I will take us into our feel-good story, and this comes from the Jed Foundation. Jed is a current and longtime client of Whole Whales. We love the work they do there, helping teens, young adults, and adolescents access mental health resources. But the Jed Foundation has teamed up with the Stevens Institute of Technology Technology has announced its Neon Nights Initiative, a signature event series that encourages participants to glow for mental health. This is an event made for students and led by students in which they raise awareness and essential funds independently or in teams using donation pages to support JED, equipping more young people to help themselves support one another and overcome mental health challenges. The initiative launched after a successful pilot program at Stevens Institute of Technology in Hoboken. And on March 30th, 70 participants attended the opening ceremony for the inaugural event. Special guests shared stories about mental health and raised more than $13,000. Afterwards, a colorful, a colorful parade lit up the Stevens campus with volunteers and sponsors stationed at glow zones along the route to distribute free neon colored swag uh we love to see our clients shine bright when it comes to creative up fundraising opportunities and this seems like this one fit the bill man you are on point with the puns today so well done Alrighty, i do have a question for you nick though uh, uh -oh. well, yeah no why did the uh, nonprofit think their bank was complimenting them? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, because the bank said that they were told, kept telling them they had an outstanding balance. An outstanding balance. Outstanding balance. Just amazing. Just amazing. Outstanding. Wow. Incredible. Incredible. Yeah, that's the right word. All right, Nick. See you out there. <laughs> Thanks, George. This has been Using the Whole Whale podcast. 
If you want to keep learning more about these topics and others, head on over to wholewhale.com university to keep learning with us. Thanks as always to gregthomasmusic.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you. 